Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen this week, or a view, or a download. Wherever it is in the world that you are, we appreciate the fact that you are here. What a year it has been. We are almost at the time to flip the calendars over to January 1st. But before the ball drops in Times Square, I wanted to take a look back at our five biggest stories of 2019. Because what a year it has been. There has been so much new information to hit the market. And the idea of a plant-based diet is now reaching further than it ever has More and more people are interested in taking charge of their health as more and more information hits the market. And on this show, that also means more and more inspiration. Perhaps the most rewarding thing about doing this show is getting emails from listeners who say, thank you so very much for saying that on the show, for sharing that information, because I took that and I passed it on to a friend or I passed it on to a family member. And now their cholesterol has lowered by 20 or 30 points. Their blood pressure is way down. They're finally off of blood pressure medication. Their heart disease is going into reversal. They're doing so much better. That weight that they never thought that they could lose, it's finally coming off. That's been the power of the exam room in 2019. So, so rewarding. So thank you so very much for taking this journey with us throughout the year. Let's turn our attention to the five biggest stories of the year. It has really been a chock full of just amazing information kind of year. You know, it has really been extraordinary. And so, filled with gratitude, let's take a look back at the five biggest stories of the year. We start at number five. This is a topic that so many of you had written in and said, will you please talk about this? It's no secret that we all want to look our best, you know? They say that if looks can kill, well then so can a cheeseburger. Food plays a huge role in how we look because whereas a plant-based diet can help us feel young and look young, a high-fat diet chock full of meat and dairy might actually help those wrinkles show up a lot sooner than we would like. I wanted to know what the connection between food and skin actually was. So I was joined by plant-based dermatologist, Dr. Niyati Sharma, who clued us in all about the connection. She answered a simple question. Is the vegan diet really the fountain of youth? How much of what we see, how much of our skin ailments are related to what it is that we're eating? Well, hard to quantify. I mean, there are about four to 5,000 different skin diseases. So I would say probably maybe five, one, maybe two to 5% is probably related to diet 
if you're just looking at the disease count. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it from a prevalence or an incidence count, then it's probably, I would say, 50% because there's only a few conditions that are very common and the other conditions are very rare. Right. So the ones that are common, I would say a majority of them would have some element of diet related. What falls under the common category? So acne, eczema, psoriasis, hydradenitis superativa, which we'll talk about later. Um, and I think... Uh, other conditions like hair loss is related to food and nutrients. Um, and then there are some blistering conditions that are in more in the rare category, but they're actually some of them are propagated by plants. So we'll, we can touch on that if we want, but they're so rare that um, it's probably not worth mentioning, but more so the ones we talked about before. So, And of course, a lot of people are interested in aging. Ah, yes. Those wrinkles. Yeah. Nobody likes them. Yeah. Nobody exactly. likes and them. It, matter of fact, it's related to diet. Well, part of it. Is so, it real? Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, my wife is going to pay <laughs> particularly close attention. Uh, we'll get there, but I, I want to yeah. start with acne because that's, sure. that's a big one. I mean, yeah. when you think acne, you think about teenagers. We all go through that phase. But for yeah. a lot of us, it actually stays with us throughout life. And I'm not mm -hmm. just talking about the occasional blemish. I'm talking about like serious adult acne. That's, that's still a problem. Absolutely. Great question. So- um, I think from the last time I looked, it's like 40 to 50 million Americans actually suffer from acne at any given point. So mm. that's a huge amount of the population. Um, so, I mean, we can look at it from two directions. So we know that dairy is related to acne. The largest trials, however, on dairy uh, were done on um they looked at different types of milk rather than no milk versus milk. And they found that skim milk was the largest contributor of um, ac forming acne. But in my opinion, it's always dairy. So mm. I always say to my patients, especially the younger ones that come in or older ones with that acne rosacea, get rid of dairy. And that doesn't mean dairy just in form of milk, cheese, yogurt, but it's also the hidden stuff, the, the dried powders that are in granola bars and uh, soups and tin, you know, canned soups and so forth. So they're um, whey protein, casein and milk solids. So they're all three items that they can put into any product because it has no flavor and it adds weight to the product. Uh -huh. So if you look at your granola bar next time, look for the ingredients because you'll definitely see one of the three in it and they also cause acne. So you have to be very careful. Do we know what about them causes the acne? Yeah. So, um, Milk in general has a few factors in it. So if we just talk about cow's milk, um, and they have instant growth factor one, which is a chemical that grows things in your body. So it, it can grow the, um, the little pimples that we have in your skin and then generate more sebum or the oily sort of material that comes out of your pores or out of your pimples. And that's what it sort of makes it happen more and more the more you have insulin growth factor one we have it we generate it ourselves through our liver but when we take milk in it shifts the axis so it almost tells our body to make more of it really yeah but also the other thing is that dairy especially in the united states um, a lot of cows are injected with somatotrophin which is an insulin growth factor one um it's an extrinsic uh, chemical that allows for increased production of dairy in cows. And when you look at the FDA website, they've, not, they've never looked at uh, 
they've never researched the effects of that on a human, but they've looked at it in terms of a cow. They've looked at 30 to 40 cows and they said, the cows have no problems, we're happy to keep going. But the problem with this is that it's not denatured in the pasteurization product. So um, one of the oncology um, uh, committees have said that almost 100% is absorbed through the body. Wow. So that can contribute like around 1% of your insulin growth factor 1 if you drink that milk that has insulin, that somatotrophin in it. So you've got it two ways now. So And then um, cow's milk has high amounts of insulin um, properties that cause insulin resistance. So that in turn affects your androgen axis, that the hormonal that you, hormones that you release from your body it affects that level so then you're getting again it eventually goes links it all the way back to the sebocyte the the pimple forming cells they make them grow much more much more faster so i that for that reason i always tell my patients that you need to really take it out actually the question i get most asked is about chocolate does ah. there's an old wives tale does, does chocolate cause acne and if you look at the type of chocolate you're eating, maybe. So if you have milk-based chocolates, then yes, because it's the dairy that contributes. And naturally in dark chocolates, the sugar is content is also less, mm-hmm. but there's no dairy. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're, you're doing a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything in reason, but you can definitely have chocolate. <laughs> uh, what about food? So um, how much of oh. this eczema and dry skin is related to diet? So just going, so dry skin in general, if you take uh, one and a half teaspoons of flaxseed, so there's been a 12-week randomized control trial study that showed if you have that much every day, which is not a lot, and you mm. can put that in a smoothie. That's the ingredient you were talking about for this smoothie? Exactly. Okay. Um, you're increasing not only because you're getting some of the, um, the ALA, so some of the omega-3 fatty chain um, in your skin, and that improves the integrity of your skin by, I think they said like 13, 15%. I mean, that's still a lot, though. That number sounds low, but it is still a lot for something that's only for 12 weeks. So, yeah, so I definitely recommend eating flax seeds or chia seeds in your diet on a regular basis. Um, Be careful. It it adds to your calories. So if you're someone you're calorie conscious, you want to be careful about that. But actually, I recommend having it every day. Let's uh, move on here. This is a, a big one for a lot of people here. Uh, wrinkles, aging. Oh yeah, everybody's searching for that fountain of youth, you know. Uh, so what's what's the deal here? Can we kind of slow the way that our face ages, stave off those wrinkles if we're careful with what it is that we put on our plate? Yeah. So I'm gonna. This is sounding like I'm a resounding board. I sugar. So sugar is a big, big thing. I'm not surprised. <laughs> um. And actually, there's a, a mechanism, and I'll ex- try and explain it to the, the listeners. So when you have a high sugar diet, it causes this cross-linking between the collagen fibers, collagen what gives you the supple skin. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get cross-linking of them in the, in the dermis, so the second layer of your skin, and they get very sort of um, rigid. And so over time, you're increasing that and then you're getting more wrinkles on the surface because the creases are occurring on the on the surface of your skin and they stay permanent. Mm. So my advice to everyone is to really look at how much sugar they're eating because if you look at um, – I'm not – you know, saying that raw vegan is the best way to go. But if you look at generally those that eat a raw vegan diet, they don't have any sugar, processed sugar in their diet. 
they do have fruits, but not processed. Right. Their skin looks way different to everyone else's. Right. Counting down the biggest shows of 2019, we've reached number four. You know, this has been a huge year for plant-based athletes. Athletes in every professional sport are ditching meat, they're ditching dairy, and they're looking to get a leg up on the competition. Everyone from Venus Williams on the tennis court to Kyrie Irving on the basketball court, Formula One champion driver Lewis Hamilton behind the wheel, fueled exclusively by plants. And then you have in the octagon UFC star Nate Diaz, an ultra strongman Patrick Bomanian, and of course, ultra marathoner Scott Jurek. So what is the advantage all of them are having by eating a vegan diet? Kyrie Irving calls it his secret weapon. And people are taking notice. It's not very much of a secret anymore because they've seen the Game Changers documentary. It hit the big screen and now it is blowing up Netflix. So what is going on there? I had to know. So I asked Dr. Jim Loomis to come on the show and shed some light on this for me. Dr. Loomis, he is actually featured in the documentary and he spent some time working as a doctor in both the NFL and in Major League Baseball. And so there was nobody more qualified to talk about this. And here's something even more incredible. When we sat down, Dr. Loomis had just returned from completing an ultra Ironman triathlon. He also had just celebrated his 60th birthday. be the team internist for the St. Louis Cardinals baseball team yes, sir. and the St. Louis Rams before yes. they moved to LA football yes. team. How do you think if you were plant-based at that time, how do you think the players at that time would have received the message of you guys really might want to look at going plant-based? I think they would have looked at me like I had a third eye. <laughs> uh, no, I don't I don't I really don't think they'd be very receptive. I mean, it's very interesting. You know, there is so much bro science in in the locker room and weight rooms, mm-hmm. um, especially with more of this on the strength train side, on the endurance side, you know there there are many selling people talking people into um, adapting or understanding or um, learning about a plant based diet for an endurance runner is really an easy sell. Yeah, um, you know Scott Jurek, Ritual, those guys have been doing it for a long time, and and, and that's a message. Many of the top ultra uh, uh, marathoners and many of the top um, Ironman triathletes are have moved plant-based strength train world different story and you know so where does their information come from well it comes from you know the the strength and conditioning coaches it might come from the trainer and come they come from each other and it's very much based not in evidence but in you know bro science i call it anecdotal yeah and yep. and you know you would go to the lot weight room in the with in the cardinal locker room there would be literally blenders scattered around with big tubs of whey protein. Oh, yeah. You know, you would go to the pregame meals uh, with the Rams when we would travel on the road, you know, and you would go down for breakfast at 8 o'clock for a noon game, and, you know, there would be steak and chicken breast and pasta because you had to get your protein and your carbs, and, and it, it really was misguided. But that has changed, I think, nowadays, and especially after Game Changers comes out. I, I think – you know, you look at the Tennessee Titans, uh, who, who are featured in Game Changers as well, um, and 
two years ago, I think 13 members of that team ended up going plant-based. Mm-hmm. It was started by Derek Morgan, uh, mm-hmm. uh, began that kind of journey. And, you know, he talks about how at first people were kind of making fun of him. And then as they see he's having this career year, leading the league in sacks and, you know, not getting injured. And he's not in the training room all the time. And he's able to recover faster. They're coming up to him. Hey, you know, what is it you're doing again? And next thing you know, his, his wife uh, is actually a, a, a plant-based chef. Yeah, Charity, was, she's yeah, been on the program. Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, preparing meals for, for half the team. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that that every day you read about another athlete who's gone plant-based, um, whether it be professional football player, you know, um, you know, I mean, all across the sports world, NBA, yeah. on and on. Yeah, and, and that's a conversation, like you said, across the sports world in many locker rooms. I tell the story all the time about a couple of years ago going out to Ashburn, Virginia, uh, where the team here in Washington trains, the NFL team. And I was speaking to a gentleman. It was the end of the season. It was week 16 or 17. Literally, they had one game left to play. And I'm, I'm interviewing DJ Swearinger. And everybody else in that locker room, I mean, you worked with the players, you know, at the end of the season, they're walking around like it's the walking dead, like it's horrible. And here's DJ just bounding down the stairs like nothing happened, like you the morning after the triathlon, you know, where everybody else just can barely move their legs. And here he is just fresh as possibly could be. And it's because he's not eating the dairy, the meat, you know, all of those inflammation inflammation things, you know, and it kind of makes me wonder, it's like, well, DJ's a starter, he's a pro bowler, and why aren't more people looking to it? And I think part of it still is kind of that stigma surrounding no, that's it, exactly which is, right. it's getting chiseled away right. now, but that bro science, is, it's, it's a tough thing to beat. Right, and that is, in fact, the exact reason that James Wilkes put, you know, started the Game Changers project. It was really and truly, you know, because he was in that, you know, he was a mixed martial arts fighter, in that in that kind of bro science meat driven world and when he got injured you know started to look around and say what's going to help me recover the fastest and discovered that the roman gladiators some of the original mixed martial artists if you will were were Mm plant-based and and he couldn't believe it because you know he never no one had ever told him that and as he started to kind of peel back the layers of the onion and 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 look around discovered the science and all these amazing athletes. And so, so I think game changers, you know, again, as I said earlier, people come to plant-based nutrition for, I came to it for my health. Yeah. Traditionally, veganism's come through compassion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Increasingly there's interest. There's been a lot of stuff with the uh, fires in the Amazon here recently Mm -hmm. about, about the environmental impact of our food ways. But, and I think the last door that's going to open is going to be performance. And I think game changers really and truly is going to be the film that changes the game because it, it prevents it presents such a compelling argument, uh, evidence-based argument for the performance and health and the environment that touches on the environment as well, uh, benefits of a whole food plant-based diet. And, and I, you know, I think that kind of the the hardest group to change are the younger men yeah. uh, because we, we they are ingrained. We've been told by society that, you know, men eat meat and you can't be manly unless you eat a lot of meat and <laughs> you can't get big and strong. And, and so trying to dispel those myths, uh, you know, I've, I've seen the film a few times now and it, it, it is, I, I, again, it is astoundingly good. Before we continue with the countdown, I wanted to take a look back at the month of October. It was a huge month. As a matter of fact, a record-setting month. It was a huge series of shows with highly respected breast cancer surgeon, Dr. Christy Funk. Her resume includes working with Academy Award-winning actress Angelina Jolie and Grammy Award-winning singer Cheryl Crow. 
we were giving uplifting information and inspiration all throughout the month of October. Listeners tuning in in droves, looking for hope, looking for information to shed new light on this horrific disease. What really causes breast cancer? What's the truth about soy? And why are genes important? But also, why aren't they everything? Of course, Dr. Funk also shed some light on the foods that we should be eating to pack a cancer-fighting punch. And all of that, all of it brought us to the realization the power of prevention begins on the plate. When did you start to make that connection between what it is that is on our plate and how that affects our risk of developing cancer? I love this question. Okay, so I, I, I can't even believe how long it took me to make the connection. So, you know, I finished my my residency in 91, my, in, oh, I mean, so in 2001, and then I finished my um, breast fellowship in 2002. So here I am coming up on 18 years of just focusing on breast cancer and breast cancer surgery and its treatment, right? And occasionally I come across a pearl of wisdom for uh, almost that whole time I've now known for whatever, for the reason, now I know the reason, but I used to know that three cups of green tea would cut breast cancer in half and that there were these great studies in China and Japan that showed that breast cancer patients in early stages one and two who drank three cups of green tea a day dropped recurrence by 47% and even higher stages by about 25%, just from the green tea. I also knew that if you squeeze some lemon in there, you bump up the EGCG content fivefold and the power is even greater. Okay, so I had these little pearls to give people. I knew that they should not be overweight. I knew that they should exercise a bunch, but basically it stopped there. I did not have a deep understanding of what a phytonutrient was, of what the plant-based chemicals inside of a broccoli floret would do once you chew and swallow. No idea. So what it took was my deep dive into nutritional science when I was writing Breast the Owner's Manual, which is, um, it's a comprehensive overview of all the things you can be thinking about to reduce your risk. But then there's a definite chunk of the book that's about optimizing outcomes as you navigate all of your treatment choices. But this book was written with every woman in mind. So it's not just, oh, now I have cancer, here's a book for you. It, it's for every woman so that hopefully you never get that breast cancer. And a big part of it are these two chapters, eat this and don't eat that. And when I dove into nutritional science because I wanted every fact I said in that book to be able to be referenced, this is not a book of my opinions. It is based on scientific research and fact. And I needed to be right for that reason. So, and it's just, you know, my AAA personality has to be right. So <laughs> I did the deep dive and as my kids would say, mind blown, I could not stop devouring the enormous amount of scientifically backed research clearly showing that the cellular response to consuming animal protein and animal fat is everything that illness requires and loves and everything that health can't tolerate. In other words, I couldn't believe that I didn't know it. I was a, a little more than upset with all of my medical training. Like, was this a big secret kept under wraps? Because 
Um, one of the most mind-blowing studies of all time would have been published in July 1990 by Dean Ornish in The Lancet, not a little journal of nutritional molecules. I made that up. I don't think that exists. So you know, it's literally this massive international recognized reputable journal comes to this publication two years before I enter medical school saying that by following healthy diet and lifestyle behaviors, largely eating a vegetarian or vegan diet and exercising every day and having some social support and meditation, you can not prevent the number one killer of you and everyone you love, which would be heart disease, not slow down its progression, but actually reverse it, like blocked arteries wide open in 80% of participants. Like, that was two years before I went to medical school. And now it's 30 years after. And I find it by accident while I'm trying to do research for the nutrition part of my book on breast cancer. That's how I find out that plants can reverse coronary artery disease. So that was just the beginning of my said deep dive. And when I really had had enough, um, I'll tell you the day, the day I had enough, I had, I took Fridays off when I wrote. I had to work four days a week. I took Fridays off. I didn't parent at all for a year. And um, basically that, I felt guilty about that. So that particular day, I kid you not, I had gone downstairs to the kitchen um, to make the kids lunch. So at the time, my kids were seven. They were triplets. They are triplets still, uh, boys. And I'm like, I'm going to make them lunch because I'm like going to be a good mom for 10 minutes. And <laughs> I... <laughs> This is the lunch I made them. So I, you have to realize I was a teenager <laughs> in the 80s. And in the 80s, bread, pasta, rice, and potatoes were a no-go. I was a carbohydrate-phobe. And I stayed that way, I stayed that way for, forever until the research for the book. And I, like any good mother would, was trying to pass that carb-phobe down to my kids. So instead of bread, <laughs> on, their, on their sliced organic turkey breast sandwich, I just rolled turkey breast slices around a mozzarella stick and wow. that's what I did that day that I then went back upstairs and I read the IARC meeting from July, 2015, um, where they had 22 researchers from 10 different countries looking at 800 epidemiologic studies simply to answer the questions, does red meat cause cancer? Does processed meat cause cancer? And as your listeners likely know, they came away from that deep dive into that research with the absolutely carcinogenic to humans list. Top of it now, processed meat, all processed meat. Right. So I, everybody can right. come in, in your heart of hearts, you have to know bacon's bad, right? Like bacon. <laughs> okay. But sausage, hot dogs, all that. Yeah, I hadn't eaten red meat since I was 10. So none of that fazed me. But wait a minute. The organic sliced turkey breast that I just rolled over had the mm. same exact carcinogenic rating as plutonium and asbestos and tobacco. I mean, had I known that, I just I would have rolled up cigarettes for them instead. No, I'm kidding. Mother of the year, rolling up cigarettes for your seven-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> so they that that was it. I had done, I had read so much, but apparently not enough at that point. But I I um. They came home from school. I heard them come down and I ran downstairs and I was like, boys, boys, come here, come here, come here. They come over to the fridge and I fling open the doors with great flair and I say, we're going vegan. And they were like, yeah, what is vegan? <laughs> <laughs> and I emptied out that fridge 
of every single piece of fish and the turkey slices and the meat and the butter and the cheese and the eggs and opened up the freezer and lo and behold my organic veggie burgers had cheese in the middle of all that list and everything went into four bags of groceries that was it literally the end not another drop of any animal product in my kids my husband or myself since that fateful day i also want to ask you about soy because there obviously we talk about this on the program a lot too is there's abundant evidence that say soy is absolutely healthy yet there's still that pervasive myth out there that soy is something that women should be avoiding because if you eat soy you're gonna get cancer right, right. so were you avoiding soy at that point when you were avoiding carbs as well I take full responsibility for having told every single breast cancer patient for 18 years straight to avoid soy. So when I went to write my book, <laughs> and now I'm a broken record. Apparently I wasn't smart at all before I wrote this book. Um, I dove into nutritional science literally to prove with science that you should avoid soy. And then, whoop, embarrassingly wrong, went through the data and realized the facts. So the knee-jerk reaction from all of us physicians is simply there's phytoestrogens in soy. We knew that. Genistein, the isoflavones, right? And I would tell people, I don't think that, the, oh, you have to understand that 80% of all breast cancers are fed and fueled by estrogen. So there's a receptor sitting on the outside of that cancer cell. And when estrogen hits it, it will send a signal to the cancer to multiply and divide. Okay. So hence, phytoestrogens, I thought, this receptor isn't discriminating. Oh, you're not from the ovary. I'm not going to respond to you. No, I think estrogen says it's a key fitting a lock. And as soon as it fits, it turns and cancer multiply and divide. So how much do you love soy milk and tofu? Just spit it out of your mouth. You're done with that. That's what I would say. Don't take that in isolation and make that now because I say the opposite. So why do I say the opposite? This is what I learned. First of all, we have two receptors for estrogen in our bodies, alpha and beta. Alpha is on the bad cancer. Beta which soy isoflavones preferentially fill with 1,600% more affinity, beta does two amazing things. It shuts alpha down, so it acts just like the tamoxifen drug we give breast cancer patients, which is an estrogen decoy drug that fills that receptor but inactivates it. Soy's inactivating it. And it goes out into your body where you have fat cells, and wherever there's a fat cell, there's an enzyme called aromatase, and aromatase is super busy, churning other steroids like testosterone and androstenedione dione from your adrenal gland into estrogen. Not a ton, as any postmenopausal woman will attest to. It certainly is not stopping their hot flashes or making them fertile, but it's estrogen and it can fill a cancer cell receptor to feed and fuel it. Soy, beta receptor, out to the fat cells and inactivates aromatase. So you're decreasing estrogen levels and you're blocking the alpha receptor. And for the small portion of genistein that's gonna end up in the alpha receptor, it has one-tenth to one-one-hundredth of that signaling capacity of the real deal estrogen. So now it's acting just like tamoxifen, sitting there like, you know, a parked car. All right, really, that sounds great. That's, this, that's the biology, biology for you. But when you put it to the test and you look at studies in humans, what are we seeing? And in fact, we're seeing shocking numbers. Shocking why? Because we have a 60% drop in breast cancer occurrence 
60% drop in recurrence in those who already had breast cancer, and a 29% drop in death. And why are those numbers shocking? Those are the same numbers of tamoxifen reducing risk against placebo. Soy acts just like the anti-estrogens that we give you that are prescriptions. And furthermore, people who are high versus low soy consumers have dramatically less recurrence in death from estrogen negative cancer. These are cancers that don't care about estrogen. So that speaks to the anti-carcinogenic powers that are outside the estrogen pathway found within soy. So long story short, consume two to three servings of soy daily to maximally reduce your cancer chances. Continuing our countdown now, we've reached number three. And this is an episode from the Let's Beat Breast Cancer series in October. The title, Dairy is Scary. You know, they say that milk does a body good, but science says not so fast. I wanted to get to the bottom of the cancer and dairy connection. And so I could think of no better person to come on the show and answer some questions than oncology dietitian Allison Tierney. She specializes not just in diet, but the diet of cancer patients. And I wanted to ask her to help explore the science showing that milk isn't the answer for strong teeth or healthy bones. Instead, what she said is that we're finding that the hormones and the fat and the protein that is found in milk, well, that can actually be a trigger for cancer. So when it comes to hormones found in dairy, uh, the biggest thing is a lot of people will say, well, if I'm drinking a milk that comes from a cow that's not treated with growth hormone, then I have nothing to worry about, right? Well, the answer is, unfortunately, that's not true because all foods of animal origin contain sex steroid hormones such as estrogen. Mm. So it, it's a natural component of animal metabolism. So it doesn't matter if it's organic, grass-fed, not fed hormones, it's naturally found in that product. So when we are consuming dairy products and other animal-based products, but specifically dairy, when we're consuming that, we're getting extra estrogen and sex steroid hormones that are coming into our body. So what a lot of people don't know is that this hormone that is from animal-based products is actually very identical to human estrogen. Mm. So for example, did you know that chicken estrogen is actually identical to human estrogen? I had no idea. That yeah, is the like first I've ever heard. Yeah, so like chemical structure-wise, it's actually the same. Where there's a lot of talk about phytoestrogens, which I know you guys have discussed on your show before, that it's not the same as human estrogen, but chicken estrogen is the same and identical as human estrogen. Isn't that fascinating? That is mind-blowing. I never knew that the humans and chickens could be so similar. Yeah, exactly. So um, the biggest thing is that um, when we have this extra, these extra hormones coming in, our body naturally has a feed, a feedback loop. And the feedback loop means, okay, our body, we're making all of these hormones. Oh, now we have enough. So we're going to stop. We don't need it anymore. Or we're going to slow it down. When it comes from exogenous sources or outside sources, our body doesn't detect that and can't therefore slow it down. So we're just having all of these extra hormones come in that unfortunately, because we're getting that higher amount of estrogen and other sex steroids, 
thyroid hormones, we're increasing our exposure to that, which is increasing our risk for breast cancer and other hormone-related cancers. So hormones aren't exactly like excess nutrients. If somebody is taking a supplement and odds are, you know, a lot of it just comes out with bodily waste, not exactly the same thing when you're ingesting hormones. Exactly. It's not the same thing that our body is still going to utilize it. So for example, um, when we're overweight or obese, all of our fat cells produce estrogen. So the more fat cells we have, the more estrogen we produce. It's not just something that we can just get rid of through our urine, like a water soluble vitamin, our body hangs on to that, and unfortunately uses it in many ways, and using it usually meaning fueling extra growth. So when it comes to cancer, the biggest thing that I teach my clients is that it's all about excess. That's the issue here is excess. So yes, do we need estrogen? Absolutely. Do we need sex steroid hormones? Absolutely. But it's all about when things are over consumed and in in excess that it promotes excess growth. So when we talk about excess growth, cancer is uncontrolled cell growth. So we want just enough growth. We want enough growth that our hair cells turn over, our skin cells turn over, GI cells turn over, but we don't want that extra growth because that's where cells can start becoming rogue or just grow with abandonment. And that's where things like cancer can develop. Let's talk specifically about some of these hormones I know that a big one specific to breast cancer is IGF-1. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yep. So IGF-1 stands for insulin-like growth factor. So the biggest thing about IGF-1 is it is known as the primary growth hormone that promotes cancer. So what I always tell people is IGF-1 is actually a natural hormone within our body. When we're kids, adolescents, when we're growing, we have higher amounts of this IGF-1, and that's completely natural. That's completely normal. But when we start getting into adulthood and we have more IGF-1, I always ask people, how much do we actually want to grow as adults? Not too much, right? We Again, we want those certain cells to turn over, but we don't want excess growth. So IGF-1, again, it complements that that excess growth. And the higher the IGF-1 is in your system, the higher the chance of developing cancer. And when it comes into dairy and nutrition and other um, animal-based foods, unfortunately, the release of IGF-1 is actually appeared to be triggered by the consumption of animal-based protein. Mm. So that's where this IGF-1, again, it's all about that overexpression. And if we're eating too much of it, um, we know that we're going to be overexpressing that growth. Another one that uh, I know comes up in these discussions is something called 5-alpha-P. And that's another one that I'm really not too familiar with at all. Shed some light on that one for us. Yeah, so 5-alpha-P is another sex steroid hormone that's found in dairy. And it actually plays a large role in creating testosterone, but it's also been found to be the driving force behind acne. Now, a lot of people will be like, wait, Allison, why are you talking about acne? We're talking about cancer here. But the thing is, is that there's actually been found to be a connection between acne and cancer, and more specifically between acne and breast cancer and prostate cancer. It's a visual indicator that there's excess hormone and excess growth that could be happening. Really? Yep. So this 5-alpha-P has been shown to be capable of what's called inducing estrogen receptors in breast cancer cells. So what that means is that cancer cells can become more sensitive to estrogen and thus increasing the cancer cell's ability to use the estrogen 
to feel its growth. So again, it kind of comes back to that natural feedback loop is that it's fueling that growth, it's getting extra, and we can't regulate that. So when we're talking about acne, I mean, that's a sliding scale. Should somebody be worried if they get the occasional blemish or should they be more concerned if it's kind of a chronic persistent thing? Be more concerned when if it's a chronic persistent thing. So I can absolutely relate to adult acne. And prior to adopting a plant-based diet, I struggled with it completely. Um, But as I got rid of that dairy and I got rid of that meat, my acne just cleared up. I remember talking to my dad and he's like, wow, your face looks so much better. And this is like my late twenties that I'm talking to him about it. And I was like, yeah, I think it's like this diet change that I'm doing. He's like, I think it's because you're not eating as much meat or drinking as much dairy. And I was like, I think you're on to something, dad. And then this was kind of like, I had already been diving into things a little bit, but I kept doing more and more. Um, I used to have horrible acne. And um, I've been able to definitely clear that up through diet, primarily alone, just diet. And so, um, yes, if again, if it's chronic, that's more of an issue because there's underlying issues there. I would have never guessed because just looking at you on Skype right now, you have this, you have such clear complexion. It's a healthy complexion. Dare I say a glow? Thank you. (laughs) I want to go back to these hormones here because we are talking about dairy and breast cancer. I don't want to get too far off topic. Um, There's another one in particular that we need to touch on, and this one is called mTOR. What is mTOR? So mTOR is actually a protein that's found within our body that's essentially the master regulator of cell growth. So here it is again, me coming back to like cell growth and and growth. And it's really the fact that dairy, eggs, meat, junk food, etc. can actually increase the IGF-1 and this also this thing called mTOR. Um, So what it does is it upregulates this and that's increasing the cellular response due to the increase of the number of receptors on the cell. But I'll tell explain that what that means. Um, So what it does is it actually activates this um, activator of TOR that leads again to that overstimulation. So again, it's a natural signaling pathway, but when it's a problem is when we're overstimulating it and we overstimulate it with things like dairy and animal products. And it's actually been recognized as the fundamental driving force behind diseases like acne, obesity, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, Alzheimer's, and cancer. Um, So when we have this master regulator of cell growth that is upregulated, then we are going to be upregulating or increasing cell growth, which is where cancer, it all comes back to cancer again. That's a big one. I mean, you just rattled off so many different chronic conditions, you know, with this one protein. Um, I'm sitting here and I look down at my notes and I came across this study concluded that uh, if you reduce your consumption of dairy by at least a half a serving per day, you significantly lower, significantly lower your risk of developing breast cancer. And that was uh, part of the cancer epidemiology study. So you can start with little changes and work your way, you know, so don't be afraid that you have to go all in right overnight. Yep, exactly. And that's what I say to a lot of my clients as well. So if maybe you're drinking um, three glasses of milk a day, breakfast, lunch and dinner, even if you just cut it back to just dinner time, you're going to have some drastic improvements right there. Um, my mom is actually a breast cancer survivor, and my mom used to drink like two 16-ounce glasses of milk for breakfast every day. And um, by sharing a lot of this information and just also experiencing it, she's been able to – she cut out dairy completely at her 
breakfast time. She hasn't completely gotten rid of it, but she just had a follow up with her doctor the other day and all of her labs are better as a result, including her cholesterol and so forth. And knowing that it can reduce the risk of breast cancer recurrence because of reducing the overactivation of mTOR, IGF-1, and the extra estrogen that could be circulating is super important to her because her breast cancer was estrogen receptor positive. So by reducing dairy, you're reducing all these things that affect hormones in the female body and the male body. We've reached the penultimate spot in our countdown. The number two story for the year, foods that boost the brain. You know, forgetfulness creeps in as the years pass by. Memories, they fade with time. That's just part of getting older. But what if we could boost our brain with our diet? Can food really fight Alzheimer's even when it runs in the family? Well, I was joined by Dr. Neil Barnard, who has studied this extensively. And he shared what foods we should be eating that actually do improve our brains and which ones we should be leaving off our plate altogether to keep that risk of Alzheimer's and memory decline as low as possible. And what we also learned is that what we cook with can almost be as important as the food we're cooking. Dr. Barnard also says that small changes in your lifestyle can make a huge difference down the line. We know that bad fats are obviously bad for the heart, but how are they in terms of the brain? Right. Um, it's a huge surprise. The, the big theme that, that comes around is that what's bad for the heart ends up also being bad for the brain. And I'm speaking, when I say bad for the brain, I'm spe- specifically speaking about Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. And i got to tell you, Chuck, if you make a list of all the things you n- never want to get in your life, at the top of that list is going to be Alzheimer's disease. Because mm-hmm. when you get that, you've lost absolutely everything. And researchers in Chicago, they were with Rush University. They started a thing called the Chicago Health and Aging Project. They rounded up a large group of people, and they tracked what they ate. They didn't tell them what to eat. It was just, what are you eating normally? Um, okay, for breakfast I have bacon and eggs, and for lunch I have hot dog, whatever it is. They added up the bad fats that they were eating. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about saturated fat, the, the fat that's solid at room temperature. And some people in Chicago didn't eat too much of that. Some ate quite a lot. And what they showed was this striking, clear-cut relationship that the more saturated fat you ate, the higher your risk of Alzheimer's disease. So that the people who ate the most had two or three times the risk of developing the disease compared to the people who generally avoided it or ate ate more modest amounts. Here's the thing. Saturated fat, its number one source is dairy. And think people don't really think about it, but cheese, butter, whole milk products, whole yogurt, that's the biggest source, and meat is number two. Um, The good news is that if you're avoiding those things, it looks like you can dramatically reduce your risk of ever getting Alzheimer's. And and by the way, one other piece of this. Saturated fat we think of as the bad fat because it raises cholesterol. But there's another one, and that's trans fats, the the partially hydrogenated vegetable oil, where they take uh, a liquid oil, but they chemically change it to turn it into a solid, and that's what we call a trans fat. And they are as bad as saturated fat. Um, they act just like lard. 
we've talked about this next part on the show before. It's my favorite thing, epigenetics and that, that genetic switch, if you will. Just because a person has a history of this in their family, if they don't eat these types of foods, that means that the risk of that switch being flipped is significantly lower. Chuck, I think that's really the critical thing. You know, as people can get tested. Um, it's called the APOE Epsilon 4 allele. That's, that's a mouthful. But, um, you know, people are doing 23andMe or, or whatever it is, and they're, and they're getting tested. And they find, do I have the, the Epsilon 4? That's the bad one. Right. Uh, do I have 3 That's or 2? Those are not the bad ones. Right. Um, and if you got 4 from mom and 4 from dad, you are what we call homozygous for Epsilon 4. That puts you at the highest risk. Your risk of Alzheimer's is 10 to 15 times higher than it would be if you didn't have that. So people are feeling condemned to the disease. However, researchers in Finland did an interesting study. They looked, again, at the bad fat, saturated fat, and what they found is that even those people who happen to have that APOE Epsilon 4 allele, the gene that supposedly condemns you, if they did not eat the bad fat, their risk of having memory problems in older age was dramatically reduced. Mm. Dramatically, I mean, hugely reduced. So it's as if we have genetic possibilities. Your genes say, you could get Alzheimer's disease. You could get diabetes. You could have heart disease. But if you live a lifestyle that keeps those genes shut off, um, we, we believe that we have a lot more control over, the, over genetic expression yeah. than we had, had thought. Yeah, I think that that's, that's the important distinction. You could, as opposed to you will get this, you know, could versus will, huge difference. G- genes act, they turn on, they turn off all the time. You know, uh, you're a little baby, um, you start to grow, eventually you get hair follicles so you, could, you can grow a beard. You couldn't grow a beard when you were six. Well, what changed? <laughs> um, and then a guy hits 50 and he starts losing his hair and he's bald and, and somebody else who's got different genes isn't bald. How do these genes turn on? How do they turn off? There are genes for lung cancer, um, interestingly enough. Um, however, what the, I mean, there are many genes, but one gene in particular, it's strongly related to whether people got lung cancer or not. So if you got the gene, you're going to get cancer? No. What the gene does is it helps your body. Uh, in this particular gene, you have enzymes in your body that, that help your body to eliminate carcinogens. Mm-hmm. If you have this certain genetic pattern, you can't eliminate those carcinogens very well. So you're going to get lung cancer. But what that means is if you smoke, that gene is really a problem for you because you're inhaling carcinogens and you can't get rid of them because of the gene. But what if you're a non-smoker? What if you avoid secondhand smoke too? Then that gene is irrelevant because you're not inhaling the carcinogens. You see what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. there are genes for Alzheimer's disease that might have to do with laying down beta amyloid plaque in the brain or whatever they're doing. But if we eat in such a way, and we lace, in such a way as to keep them silent, and we exercise and, and do other things, then you have a lot more power over this disease than genes alone would suggest. All right. So we've talked about how fats could flip that switch. What about metals in the yeah. diet? I know that that's, that's another one. Uh, iron and aluminum? Yes, th- th- that's exactly right. You know, back in the 1950s, iron was thought to be a completely good thing. The more iron, the better. In fact, there was a, 
a compound called uh, Geritol. I think, I think you still buy it. They had uh, commercials for Geritol. If, you're, if you have iron-poor blood, that's why you're tired, take Geritol. It's got more iron than an entire pound of calf's liver. And, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not kidding. That's what they used to say. And so everyone thought, great, more iron, better. But what we discovered is that iron is good in a tiny amount. You need a little bit so that the red blood cells have the iron to make hemoglobin to carry oxygen. That's iron's job. Get a little bit too much. In the same way as a cast iron pan can rust, iron in your body will, will oxidize as well. Each iron molecule, yes, iron molecules will oxidize in such a way that they create free radicals which damage the brain. Wow. Uh, copper, same story. You know, you take a copper penny, bright and shiny. Sure. Uh, Ten years later, is it shiny? No, it's oxidized. It's turned dark. Copper, you need copper in your diet, tiny, tiny amounts for enzymatic operations. But the copper in your body will rust, so to speak, oxidize, just like iron does, creating free radicals. So um, where does this matter? Or or in what situation is this going to affect you? Got a cast iron pan. Um, I use it every day. The iron is getting into my food, and I got too much iron. Or let's say I'm a meat eater, or I'm eating liver. You're getting huge amounts of iron that the body cannot keep out. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a good thing. That's a problem. Um, the uh, free radicals will attack the heart. They'll attack the brain. Um, so the, the 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 good news is that now we know that if I get my iron, well, two things: throw out the meat. All right, you'll meat's gone. Yeah, um, throw out the animal products altogether. Now, where are you getting iron? You're getting iron from green vegetables and beans, and they have iron in a slightly different form. It's called non-heme iron in plants, and it's completely different from the heme iron that's in animal products. In plants, if you need more iron, because let's say you're a little bit low in iron, right? If you need more. Your body will absorb more of, of the non-heme iron. If you've got enough already, your body will absorb less. It's the kind your body can regulate. Uh, regulate. If it's heme iron from meat, your body can't regulate it. All right, let's let's put a capper on food. I know that the listeners are probably wondering, like, hey, okay, so we've got all this information. Bad fats, obviously bad. That takes bacon out of the equation for breakfast. So what are some other yes. breakfast foods that you think we should be eating? Okay. Um, all right. So my Fargo, North Dakota breakfast that I grew up on was eggs and bacon or sausage. And, and those foods are loaded with saturated fat um, and as well as high. With, uh, in, the eggs have a huge amount of cholesterol. And we've shown that cholesterol is also linked to Alzheimer's disease, just like saturated fat. Yeah. If I had a bowl of oatmeal instead effectively, well, zero, zero cholesterol and effectively zero saturated fat. So to make it good, put on some cinnamon, put on some raisins, uh, slice up some bananas, or you can put on a few little bit of crumbled walnuts. So what have I done? I've taken away the bad fats and I've added the vitamin E to it. If I have my blueberry pancakes, skip the butter. If you want to put a little maple syrup on top, fair enough. Um, Blueberries in your pancakes are an interesting thing. Um, researchers at the University of Cincinnati showed that m- older people who were having memory problems did better if they had uh, blueberries or grapes. It, the, the anthocyanins in those foods seemed to help them. Uh, the studies actually used the juices of these things, but you can do it with the, the blueberry itself. Um, so, Or scramble up, instead of scrambling eggs, scramble up tofu. For any tofu-phobic person out there, Go get some tofu, scramble it into your pan, mix in a little nutritional yeast, uh, maybe some turmeric or something like that, a little salt and pepper. The, the second time you have it, you will be addicted. 
yeah, to it. So good. You're, you're going to love it. So good. Um, I guess other people like uh, whole grain bagels, you know. We, we just fine. had a bagel breakfast here this morning, as a matter of fact. It's, these things are fine. And so the real rule is make sure you get your vegetables. Right. Because they give you, give you iron in the form that you can absorb, but you can also keep out if you're already iron overloaded. Have your fruits, have your whole grains, have your beans. Don't forget your B12. Real quick, lunch, dinner. Can you give us a couple ideas there? Sure. Uh, and the swaps are pretty simple. Let's say every day I have meat chili. Mm-hmm. Well, have bean chili instead. Very simple. If you're um, having a spaghetti dinner instead of meat sauce or the Alfredo sauce, which is loaded with with saturated fat, yeah. um, have the arrabbiata sauce, the marinara sauce, the, the wild oyster mushrooms on top of it, uh, the uh, artichoke hearts. You, know, you can make it delicious. Yeah. But what you have done with this is you've knocked out all the saturated fat and you've avoided the trans fats too. Uh, you go to the sushi bar. Do not have the fish sushi unless you are really well insured. Uh, (laughs) Everybody knows about the contamination in fish. Um, But you can get the cucumber cucumber roll or the asparagus roll. Um, Get the sweet potato roll. Get the the seaweed salads. Um, Seaweed is one of the great sources, actually, of iodine, which a lot of people are are low in, and your thyroid gland is aching for a little bit of iodine, so seaweed is a a great source. If you're going to the the Mexican place, get your bean burrito, skip the meat taco. Um, Often when people think international, Italian, Japanese, Mexican, Chinese, there are grain-based, vegetable-based dishes. Mm -hmm. Effectively, zero saturated fat are very, very low, really healthy choices. Before we continue with our countdown, I wanted to read you a quote. I had a cheeseburger for dinner. Then I finished reading the China study that night and started a vegan diet the next day. That's what Dr. Andrew Friedman told me. He was influenced by a legend in the nutritional game. That legend is Dr. T. Colin Campbell. He and I had the opportunity to speak at the Fairfax Veg Fest over the summer, and it was a fascinating conversation. It was an honor to delve into the future of plant-based medicine with him and examine how adopting a plant-based diet may help alter the course of treatment for cancer patients in the future. It was a remarkable conversation with a -a one-of-a-kind in medicine. Do you think that as doctors become more and more aware of the link between disease and nutrition, you will see some of your colleagues lessen that resistance to some of the ideas that you're putting forward? Yes, definitely. In fact, I would say that the the most uh, joyful part of my career in the last 10 to 20 years has been um, speaking to medical schools. I've spoken to at least 200 more than that around the country. They like to hear science, so I kind of get into the science with them. Uh, they haven't been trained in nutrition. At first, when I was doing this, I was mostly met with silence. I didn't know what it was. I thought maybe I'm not doing very well. I'm not explaining. Um, maybe they're too shocked or whatever. So there wasn't too much discussion in the first half dozen or so or 10 or 12. But then I, I noticed there were more interests being shown. Because they do like science. And the fact is they just aren't trained in that area. They, don't, they weren't trained in biochemistry all, all that well. They certainly were not trained in nutrition. When I started explaining, well, look at this, this, and this, 
uh, all of a sudden it started warming up. And the first reaction from my perspective that I got, personal reaction was anger. Right. Some of them coming forth and saying, what, you know, we never heard this before. I say, yeah, I know you didn't. And so they get into Now, in the last six or seven years, starting with the uh, Plantation Congress, I, I think, more or less, several times, I've spoken to physician groups. I get a standing ovation when I'm introduced. Not when I'm done when I'm introduced. Right, right. From uh, physician-rich audiences. And now I'm finding out physicians are kind of buying into this. That's the one group, in my estimation, is is uh, making a change. And probably because they're in, they're in, they got into medical school because they wanted to help people. Sure. And they didn't learn this. So it's understandable why they'd be somewhat reluctant in the beginning. Yeah. Who would? Yeah. But I you think know, it's getting out to you. It's, it's so funny. You know, my, um, my doctor, I remember when I told him, I said, hey, doc, I, I switched to a vegan diet. And he's like, well, where do you get your protein from? You know, that As question. That, and and it's, you get those questions from, from doctors still. And I think that that really goes to show really just how little is, is taught of of this, I mean, it's it's just mind blowing. Right, you're absolutely right. That is the key question. I, I call in this new book. I'm introducing an idea that um, protein is the driver of nutrient. I call it driver of nutrient. We use that word in genetics. We use that word in uh, some other systems. What that means is that amongst the, let's say a collection of possible causes, mm-hmm. I'm going to say animal protein is the driver of nutrient, and, and I'm saying that because. That, you know, our getting caught up in consuming animal foods came from, well, first off, animal foods, but then it was justified because it was animal protein. And animal protein, in turn, was high quality, quote-unquote. So I'm challenging all all that stuff uh, because I know what the methodology was. I know the history of it. I know the individuals in a lot of cases. And uh, I'm going to call them out on it, that uh, the animal protein, of all the nutrients, clearly, there's no other to match. I don't care what one antioxidant or whatever. The one nutrient that is more to solve the world's problems than any other is animal protein. Mm-hmm. No mistake about it. But, uh, you know, my colleagues, even in this field here, this plant, they don't ever talk about animal protein. I'm, I'm kind of sad about it, but they don't. <laughs> They're always talking about fat or omega-6 or omega-3 or fiber or something like that. Sure, sure. sure. And uh, I think they're missing a boat. So. I wonder... I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about something else that you talked about in your presentation, and that was supplementation, supplements. It's a huge industry, uh, as we all know. Um, And you talked about a beta-carotene study uh, that was done on smokers and the the disparity between somebody who was taking the beta-carotene supplements versus somebody who was getting it through their diets. Big deal. And, I mean, you were talking about, what, an 18% difference in each direction, so a 36% swing overall, I mean, between prevalence of cancer versus not. That's huge. Why is it, in your estimation, that supplements don't work as well as, you know, getting beta-carotene from a carrot? I think the answer is pretty simple, really. It's the fact that when you take a nutrient out of food, now it's minus its context. The context is not there. Now, at that point in time, you can say sometimes all hell is going to break loose. That nutrient is out there on its own, usually being administered at some dose that's not relevant. Mm-hmm. 
That's one part, part of the problem. But just the fact that it's being uh, consumed in isolation is, is a big deal. Because when the beta carotene is, or other things, when it's being consumed as food, you got the whole package there. Nature already figured out how to do this. I'm a great fan of nature. Right. And, and I think nature figured out how to do this eons ago. And uh, you know, had a package when you eat the whole food. Most of the stuff there that's needed is there. Right. Especially if you use different kinds of foods. You know, some variety. And right. Sure. Obviously, you put that, you put that all together. It only stands the reason. And so, and I think the beta carotene was one of the first wake up calls on that point. At least was for me. You've been in this game now for a long time. What? would you say your legacy what do you want your legacy to be well I can my first word has always been integrity and in fact I I think the word science and integrity are synonymous Mm -hmm. it may sound odd but for me you know as naive as I was first person ever go to college from a farm all that sort of thing um I didn't know what to expect, but I do one thing. I did remember one thing always. My father, you know, only a couple of years education, farmer. Um, he was he was an immigrant, but he one thing w- with him was really really important. Tell the truth. He used to say, "Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth." End of story. And so, and he had up in Loudoun County, he had a great deal of respect for integrity. He was well known for his integrity. Well, that stuck with me. Yeah. So, and then I come to find out that science, the, th- the theory of science, the concept of science, the idea of forming, you see something, you form a hypothesis, and you can make a hypothesis of anything. That's fair enough. Sure. Uh, as long as you're willing to be wrong. <laughs> you make a hypothesis, then you test it. You test it appropriately, and then you look at the data. And if it doesn't go your way, okay, then go back and reformulate the hypothesis. I mean, it's very straightforward. This whole process, but you never ever could cheat. Right. You never could cheat. Always and always ask yourself, am I being biased here? I mean I know something about bias because I was you know, coming from the farm as I was. That was a big challenge for me because I'm I'm getting a pot shots here and there in every place. You know, why are you talking about this area? That, that's got to be wrong, isn't it? It really makes you think. Do I want to keep on talking about this way? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh and always, I, I get great comfort in remembering what my father's advice was. And here we are. The number one story on the exam room for 2019 is food addiction. This was the most downloaded show of the year. So many of us are curious about this. What is it about food that makes it impossible to put the fork down? I'll tell you. Whenever you see somebody that is 300, 400, 500 pounds, they are quite literally wearing their addiction on their sleeve. And I'm speaking from experience. At 420 pounds, I was just one of millions of people worldwide struggling with this. You know, the rate of men who are just overweight, well, that's falling. But the rate of men and women who are obese, 
Well, that is skyrocketing, and that means that people aren't just a few pounds overweight anymore. It means that we are getting heavier and heavier. And if you need more evidence, the rate of men and women who are severely obese is up significantly over the last half century, particularly since 1980, a steep incline according to statistics that are being kept by the CDC. Now, I will tell you that nobody chooses to be overweight. But for many of us, we cannot stop eating. And that is why I would sneak out in the middle of the night to get my fast food fix. It is why my brain would freak out when it didn't get its hit of unhealthy. So many people struggle with this. So I asked Dr. Barnard for some answers. Shockingly, He said that the parallel between food and drug addiction is so great that a chocolate addict's cravings can be curbed with Narcan. That is the same drug used to treat opioid overdoses. It kind of shocked me that Food addiction is this prevalent. According to an NIH study that was done not too terribly long ago, uh, as many as 7% of women and 3% of men uh, are classified as food addicts. I personally, having been one, could say, well, those numbers could be a little bit higher. But overall, I mean, that's, that's a pretty substantial portion of the population. Yeah, and it really depends on how a person defines it. It can be much, much higher. For example... Um, let's say we're not necessarily talking about a problematic addiction, something that gets you into trouble, but something that's clearly addicting, like a morning cup of coffee. Right. How many Americans would, would say, you know, I have one every morning. Are you addicted? Yeah, of course, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, because it doesn't have any moral overtones, people <laughs> will, will readily agree right. that that's them. And they know it's physical. They know it's caffeine because they drag out of bed and they haven't had their coffee and they feel withdrawal until they've had, had their dose. The, the point I'm making is I think these numbers are low. Hmm. Um, I think that their addiction to foods is far more common than that, if not even universal, meaning that at some point in their lives, people get into a jag, a rut, a habit um, that has a physiological basis that has them eating that food that doesn't love them back, and they're, and they're having it every single day. I mean, I'll, I mean, we've talked about that on this show quite a bit, is, you know, uh, how woefully addicted I was to food and it was the same food every single day it was Boston Market for lunch it was taquitos at 7-Eleven on the way home with two 32-ounce Gatorades thank you very much Uh, and then it was $20 worth of Taco Bell for dinner and if I did not get those foods I turned into cranky pants you did not want to be around me and the longer I went without those foods the stronger the withdrawal symptoms became I got to a point when I would be two or three days out, I would start to sweat. I would start to feel nauseous. I would get really, really angry to the point where, as I've said on the show, I've put my fist through a wall because I wasn't getting my fix. And that's an addiction to food, food, not a drug, food. But you're pointing out something really, really important. It was a certain food that you had identified every day. And at the same time a day. Yeah. Um, in other words, addictions have cycles. So you might love 
whatever it is. You know, a person, you know, went out on a bender and they got totally drunk. But that was completely out of character for them. They hadn't done it before. Um, and they didn't drink for weeks afterwards. That's not addiction. That might have been a bad choice, but it might not have helped them, but it's not an addiction. Addictions are on a daily basis or, or even on a faster cycle than that, uh, a tobacco addiction. Right. Nicotine is obviously addictive. Um, the cycle is faster, you know, so you've got to have a cigarette every certain kind of increment. Um, but with food, it's very often a 24-hour kind of cycle. It's a certain food, and it's a certain kind of day. So you weren't at Taco Bell at 9 a.m. It was, it was a night, I'm, I'm going to say. Yeah. Um, it was a nighttime thing. Absolutely. Or for some people, the refrigerator is a magnetic 830. Um, and you know what you want. Or you're going to the very same store for the very same three chocolate bars, you know, every night or whatever it is. Yep. Specific food, specific time, and that is a, a sign. And, and because you see this so often, that's why I think that, I think that ad- food addiction is much more common than is recognized. Before we talk about which foods are the most addictive, you know, what food properties kind of light up the brain, let's talk about how that brain reacts in food addicts compared to those of a drug addict. You know, these studies that they've done are, are quite staggering, and they say, well, if correct me if I'm wrong, but the brain reacts very similarly with food addicts as it does with the drug addict. We have some fundamental neural circuitry that's designed to reward us. And what nature had in mind was not to reward you for a Snickers bar or a Taco Bell meal. Uh, what nature was thinking of is we need a reward circuitry for, let's say, uh, you find just a good, healthy uh, food source so that you will remember where you found it. You'll, you'll, you'll uh, key in on all the cognitive things about where it is and, and remember to have it again because biologically that will support you. Right. Um, the same circuitry, by the way, is triggered when you find a receptive mate. So um, th- these things sustain the individual and sustain the species. Um, it's a little humiliating to think we have circuitry like that in our brains, but we didn't design the system. We're stuck with it. Um, now, that circuitry gets triggered. Okay. It gets triggered by all kinds of things that that, that hijack it. Uh, no, when when human beings evolved to have this circuitry, and by the way, animals have it too. Um, nobody had figured out how to ferment grains and to make oh, beer. liquor, yeah. be, liquor, <laughs> beer, wine. Um, but once we had that technology, you suddenly discover you can feel not just good, but you can feel better than anyone has ever felt um, because you're triggering that pleasure circuitry. And and what the circuitry does is one cell sends dopamine, these little molecules of dopamine, to the adjacent cell. That sets up, it propagates a pleasure response that doesn't just feel good. It, It does that, but it also kind of sets a timer saying, put this on repeat. Do this again. Mm-hmm. Do this again tomorrow. Same time, okay? Right. Um, and dopamine does that. Um, so alcohol can do it, obviously. And then when people figured out how to make cocaine, you know, it's, it's a leaf. But somebody figured out how to, how to extract cocaine. Uh, tobacco with nicotine. Uh, opiates, heroin, and right. others. And uh, no surprise, it's also things that we ingest that we, that we call food, but that nature thought, wait a minute. You know, that's not necessarily food. You take sugar cane mm-hmm. and you throw away all the fiber and all the pulp and you extract just the sucrose from it uh, or sugar beets. Uh, people can get hooked on sugar as well. I don't think that that's an uncommon addiction. Uh, you know, you go through any checkout line in any supermarket in this country uh, and you will see a bevy of candy just staring right at you saying, grab me. 
And and that's why I want to get away from this idea of addiction as being a terrible thing. Um, I, I don't mean to say it's helpful, but I mean to say it's not a moral failing. Um, and if a person doesn't want to use the word addiction, just call it a jag, or I got into a rut. But the idea that person A is a sugar addict and person B isn't, wait a minute, like everybody can be or has been or will be a sugar addict at some right. point in their life right, right. because it's it's ubiquitous. It's, it's wafted into our culture, and it gets mixed with things to make it more addicting. Like sugar alone, addictive, right. but you mix it with a little cocoa butter. Um, the fat sugar balance, about 50-50, uh, will cause the, the dopamine neurons to say, okay, now we're on to something. And, and there are... I believe, like, we'll just call them food scientist think tanks that work for these large restaurant corporations whose sole function is to figure out how to make people crave these items a little bit more, how to get more of what it is that will trigger that response. Success for them is defined by what goes over the cash register. So if something is <laughs> scanned over the cash register and they are making money, that is success. How do you do that? You can, you can modify the fat-sugar mixture of a candy bar. You can modify the s- salt content of a bag of potato chips. Mm-hmm. And you can modify these things to make them more or less addicting. And that's what the companies are doing. Um, and they're pl- also playing with, with timing. Um, fourth meal. You know, that's, uh, okay, I know that one. you know what I'm talking yeah. about, or uh, and sizes, um, because uh, addictions have doses. So a person starts out as a, a having occasional cigarette, and occasion they work their way up, and their dose is a pack a day, or my dose is a pack and a half, and you find your dose, you, you accelerate, you stay at your dose, and and you're there. So if if it's fast food at night, there's a certain amount that you want every night, and you tend to not go under, and you tend to not go too much over that dose. You, you get there. And so the scientists want to know what that is. They want to package that for you to maximize their profit. We've touched on chocolate a little bit, candy. So sugar, clearly one of the more addictive substances food-wise. What else should we be looking for? Um, well, speaking of sugar, you can take a baby, day one of life, and uh, let's say we're going to draw a blood sample from that baby. We do a little little heel stick. We draw a, a, some blood, put it in a in a a tube, send it to the lab. The baby cries. Instead of doing that, I'll take some sugar, put it in maybe a teaspoon of sugar, put it in a cup of water, and dribble some of it into the baby's mouth with a little syringe. Then you do the heel stick. The baby doesn't cry. Really? Or cries less. Um, and people have noticed this with, with all kinds of things that are painful to the baby um, or would other, uh, like a medical procedure. And they found that sugar acts as a little bit of a painkiller, um, except if mom was a, hor- a heroin addict. If mother was a heroin addict, uh, sugar tends not to work so well. The po- here's, here's why. Sugar on the tongue triggers the release of opiates in the brain. In turn, those opiates trigger the release of dopamine, the pleasure chemical we were talking about. Right. If the baby happened to have a heroin-addicted mom, the baby was bathing in opiates for nine months and now is basically just in withdrawal. The baby's in withdrawal wow. after, birth, after birth, and the sugar is not going to really raise the opiate level in that brain to, to the point of, of uh, to be very significant. Wow. Um, so, the, again, the point is this is everyone. Right. Um, everyone can, can have this effect from sugar. Now, with chocolate, chocolate's sweet. Chocolate has sugar added. Uh, but a person who wants chocolate doesn't just want a box of Domino sugar. They specifically want chocolate because the chocolate adds 
first of all, it's a mixture of some sugar and also the cocoa butter is enhanced. Mm-hmm. It, it's not just it's not just the bean extract. They actually increase the amount of cocoa butter because if you get the right mixture, it's more addicting and more satisfying. Right. There's a little bit of caffeine in chocolate. There is a lot of theobromine. If anybody has a dog and the vet said, don't let your dog have chocolate uh, because the chocolate can hurt the dog. Right. What the vet is thinking of is theobromine. In a human, it's a stimulant. In a dog, it, it is such a stimulant, it can be, pain, it can be fatal. Wow. Um, there are other compounds in chocolate too, but these help us explain why a person who wants chocolate wants chocolate. They don't just want something sweet. Right. They don't want hard candy. Specific. They specifically want chocolate because that's an addiction. Interestingly enough, you can take uh, Narcan, the drug used for heroin yeah. overdose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you give it to a chocolate addict, and then you give them a tray of chocolate. I, I, by the way, I don't, I don't mean a person who appreciates chocolate. I mean a person who will binge on chocolate. Right. You pre-treat them with Narcan, which is a drug that, that effectively knocks – it makes heroin or – morphine or any other narcotic not be able to adhere to the mu receptors in the brain. A chocolate addict will suddenly lose much of their interest in chocolate. Wow. And by the way, this is not a treatment. Um, this is a – you'd have to take it intravenously on your way into the 7-Eleven. Um, this, this is a, um, it's a research tool okay. where a person says, oh, I just like chocolate. I just love the taste. I like the mouthfeel. Fine. Let me give you some Narcan. And if your ingestion of that goes way down, that's a sign it was doing something in the brain that we have now blocked. What about processed meat? That's something that we talk about a lot here. Bacon. Why is bacon such an addictive thing? Everybody, you know, that's everything's better with bacon. Why? Well, it's addictive for a variety of reasons, but to cut to the chase, I mentioned Narcan. You can give Narcan to Hank, um, inject it into his arm, and if he's a bacon addict, he will eat less bacon. Really? Meaning that it's not just because he likes the taste. It's because it's working on his brain. It, tr- it triggers the release of dopamine. Um, and you can quantify, and, and by the way, not just bacon, but with other meats too. But with bacon, what do you have going for it? You have meat. We see this, you could see it even with tuna a little bit. But with bacon, it's quite high in fat, especially saturated fat, which is also in chocolate. Um, but now, a lot of salt goes in. It's salt cured. Oh, yeah. Um, so nobody takes bacon. You know, they, they don't want just. Um, some raw pork or something like that. They, they want it cooked up, greased up, salted up, um, cured, and that's what they're going to love. The tragedy of all this, I mean, there's many tragedies. Uh, what happens on the farms is horrible. For the, for the animals, it's disgusting. For the environment, it's horrible. Um, for your health, it's terrible. But there was just a report that came out about two, three days ago looking at cancers in people under the age of 50. Unlike all the progress that we are slowly but surely making against cancer, we are losing the battle on colorectal cancer, um, and the reason is that bacon is a fad. Wow. And we're, we have developed this nihilistic attitude that, ah, live it up, it's wonderful, let's go out to the breakfast place and just have it and, and treat our sons and daughters to it so that it's part of their life. Let's serve it in schools. Let's serve it in hospitals. Um, the, the very hospital that will not give you cigarettes, they will not let you smoke. They, they used to sell them. They don't sell them anymore. We'll sell you bacon. 
despite the fact that it's a major contributor to the second leading cause of cancer death, which is colorectal cancer. So the final question is this. Somebody's hearing this podcast. They're recognizing, like, okay, I have a problem. I am a cheese addict. I'm a chocoholic. I can't go a day without bacon. What do they do? How do you break that food addiction? Oh, great question. Uh, several things. Um, first, first of all, don't beat yourself up. As I mentioned earlier, this is not your fault at all. It's not, it's not you. It's the food. Foods have the capacity to addict anybody. And we saw this in, in, say, Vietnam with heroin. You know, people were over there and there's heroin around. And virtually everybody, you know, who used it would get hooked. But when they would come back to the U.S. and heroin wasn't, like, available to them or whatever, they, they would just break away from it. So, so the point I'm making is it's the substance that's to blame, not you. Um, secondly, focus on the short term. Um, don't think, oh, I just love X food. The, the idea of life without it is intolerable to me. For, don't worry about that. Just focus on, for right now, I'm not going to have it. That's the reason why with Alcoholics Anonymous, one day at a time, right. or uh, a smoking cessation program, we focus on now, not, not forever. That makes it a lot easier. Um, don't let yourself get super hungry. In other words, eat breakfast. Eat lunch. Eat dinner. Um, at least a little bit, because otherwise, uh, when you're really hungry, cravings kick in and we just throw our resolve out the, the, the window. Um, be aware of the cycle. Uh, what is your time when the, when the cravings kick in? And if it kicks in, do something inconsistent with that behavior. So uh, if it happens when you're alone and it's in the evening, then don't be alone. You know, do something so that it can't happen. Um, don't do it in moderation you will find that moderation drags you right back into it. It's better if something doesn't love you, you just got to break up a bad relationship. Get it out of your life. Man, yeah, Whatever that, it is. That's, that's a tough – people debate that one all day long. Well, I'm going to be clear about this. And, and there may be – there are people who can do th- certain things in moderation. The person who smokes at uh, the occasional party, that's a person where they just aren't addicted yet. But if you're smoking every single day and you have not – you've broken free – and it's now been two months and you, have, you haven't had a cigarette, if you decide to light up the next day, you're back up to a pack a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's once, once you have gotten into the addiction and your brain has decided, okay, this is me now, um, at that point, moderation doesn't work. Right. Moderation only for you is going to work for healthy things like broccoli. You can have a moderate amount of broccoli and, right, and brown rice and all these things, but for something that's going to hurt you, you don't want to have it at all. Um, uh, a couple of things. Uh, dopamine can be released by all the drugs and foods that we've been describing, but it's also released by exercise. Um, so if you can can bring exercise into your life, do it. And by the way, don't wait until you want to. Some of the best advice I ever got was I read somewhere somebody saying, I never want to. <laughs> I never want to. And this is this is the phrase, just do it. You know, all right, I don't feel like exercising, so just do it. And what you discover is... About halfway through, you're into it, yeah. and then you're glad you did. And the next day, you're not going to want to do it again. But just for you know, you if you wait until you want to, you will never do it. But exercise gives you a little bit of dopamine release. That's good. Now, in order to um, once you've exercised, you got to make sure that you like plan it, put it on your schedule, treat it like an appointment with yourself. Do it with someone else so that if you don't show up, they will call you. Um, and don't forget to sleep. Ten o'clock at night. I don't care how good your book is. Go to sleep. Because if you have had a rotten night, if you stayed up all night, you'll eat anything just to get through the day. Sure. But if you are well-rested, you've got a little extra hedge 
against things that would otherwise call call your name. And maybe my last tip is think about other motivators, things that matter to you. Um, a lot of people will break up with cheese, meat, for the animals. Um, once you've seen what they go through, you think, all right, I don't want to have anything to do with that anymore. Mm-hmm. Or, or they will do it for the environment. Or they'll do it for their son mm-hmm. or their daughter or their wife. You know, I don't want to be an enabler for somebody who's near to me. Think whatever those motivations are. Um, let them play out in your mind. You put these things together. Addictions are still powerful. Yeah. But these things will help you. And if you've uh, broken up and it didn't stick, who cares? Dust yourself off. Get back on. Uh, one, one last thing I, sh- I should mention. Um, earlier in the program, I was talking about it's not you. There are people who actually do genetically have less dopamine activity naturally. Other people have more. Um, some people have fewer dopamine receptors in their brain. They're just born that way. So it is true that those people discover that cigarettes or alcohol or drugs or food call out to them even more because it gives them the dopamine other people are getting naturally. Hmm. However, the, dis, despite the fact that there are these actual physical differences, and some people are a little bit more set up for addictions than others, as I mentioned at the beginning, the food industry can addict absolutely Anybody. Yes, indeed. Um, given the opportunity, they will do it. And uh, the good news is that we can break away. And, and once you've been free of it, you just, you just get momentum. You liked being, you know, stuffing yourself with food. You like smoking. But you like not doing that. Right. You like not doing that even better. Right. Um, and, and you get great momentum in that direction. And there you have it. The five biggest stories of 2019. What a year it has been. And what a year 2020 is going to be. If you ever have any questions or a topic that you would like to suggest on the show, please don't hesitate to let us know. We are on Twitter at Chuck Carroll WLC and at PCRM. You can also find us on Instagram at Chuck Carroll WLC or at Physicians Committee. We would love to hear from you. What can we help answer for you in the new year? And while you're on your phones, would you do me a favor, please? And subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcast and wherever it is that you get your audio from. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating because when you do leave that five-star rating, you help get this show and this life-changing and life-saving information in front of as many eyes and as many ears as possible because it helps us in the rankings. And the higher we climb, the more people will find this information. So please help us out and do your part by leaving that five-star rating. What a wonderful year 2020 is going to be. I want you to make it the healthiest year ever. Continue on a healthier journey. Let's all help make this world a healthier place. I am so looking forward to so much more science, more data, looking at the link between our food and our health. Looking forward to having you share that with other people. And sharing that with you, we have so much to look forward to. And so for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. 
And remember, keep it plant-based and have a wonderful, joyous, and healthy New Year. Year.